Amen. I want you this morning to keep your place there in Acts chapter 1, and then turn in your Bibles over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. So just uh, put a bookmark or something there. Hold Acts 1 because we're coming back. But I want us to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Most, most Bibles have given this chapter the title, Israel Asked for a King. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a very significant chapter in the Old Testament narrative. And when I say that it's significant, I mean that I would put it up there with Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of the tree in the garden. Just as that decision that happened in Genesis 3 had lasting effects on all of humanity, the decision that's made in 1 Samuel chapter 8 similarly has lasting effects on the people of God. And I think it's important to know what happened here in order to more fully understand what's happening in the book of Acts. And so that's why I want us to start here, begin here this morning. So some of you are going to be familiar with with this. We find Samuel. Um, We're not going to read this entire chapter, but I do want to hit the highlights. The elders, picking up in verse 4 of Israel, gathered together. They came to Samuel. They said to him, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said this, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And so he does that. He does just that. Samuel lets them know what this king that they want, that's just like all the other nations have, will do to them. He gives them fair warning. But, verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. The people of God rejected God as king. That's significant. And instead followed after lesser kings, like all the other nations had. And this decision has left a deep, dark stain on the people of God. What we, if you continue on in the story of Israel in the Old Testament, is that their wish to have a king, just like all the other nations, becomes a reality, and it leads to their splitting as a people and ultimately to their downfall downfall and exile as a nation. However, 
During their time of exile, the prophets of Israel wrote about a future king. And this king will turn their allegiance away from the lowercase g gods, will turn their allegiance away from the lesser kings, just like all the other nations have, and back to their one and only king, God. One of these prophets in particular, named Ezekiel, even anticipated a day when God's people would return from exile, be given the Spirit of God, experience cleansing from sin, and power to keep God's commands and live again united under the reign and rule of God as king. So, the people of Israel returned from exile, but only under the reign of foreign rulers. Several centuries pass, and Israel just gets passed around from one foreign ruler to the next. Yet, there still remained hope for a future king. I think it's important to understand that background because the book of Acts is best understood in light of these Old Testament promises being fulfilled with the coming of the kingdom of God through the arrival of Jesus Christ. One of the primary points of emphasis for this two-volume work of Luke-Acts is the kingdom of God. And this is a subject that should be just as emphasized today as it was in the first century. Now, we do not live in an age where we just go around talking about kingdoms. And so, um, we don't talk about things in those terms anymore. It seems like it's kind of antiquated language, but the kingdom of God should very much be a part of our language and a part of our understanding. If you look at Luke, just a quick glance through the gospel of Luke, and we learn that all during his ministry, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. For example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. He couldn't make it any more clear for us. He says, I was sent. One of the primary reasons I have come is to proclaim to you the good news of the kingdom of God. He makes similar statements all throughout the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, when teaching about the kingdom of God to his disciples, Jesus does not speak about the kingdom of God as though it's something that's coming in the future, but instead about the present coming of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near to you. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying that the kingdom of God is among you, or it's, it's in your midst. In other words, it's right here in your presence. It's right under your noses. The implication of his words is that the kingdom of God is among them because Jesus is among them. So, with this knowledge, with this understanding, let's open up to the book of Acts. And I want us to read 
again, the introduction, just these first three verses. Acts 1, 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, this is not just something for us to skim over because this is the key to the entire book. During these 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, the subject of his teaching with his disciples is the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. If you knew that you only had 40 days left with your family and with your closest friends, what things would you tell them? What topics would you discuss with them? I think that you would share and, 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 and discuss the things that are most important to you, the things that are primary. And Jesus, Luke tells us, spends these 40 days, these important days of teaching and instructing his closest disciples who would take his message to the ends of the earth. He spends this time talking with them about the kingdom of God. That's how Luke introduces the book. He wants us to know this at the very outset. Now, let's just look quickly at the conclusion of the book in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31. So again, just kind of keep your finger there. At chapter 1, Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31, Paul had arrived in Rome. He was under house arrest. And here's the conclusion to the book. This is where we're going. Therefore, um, picking up in verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we find here is that the book of Acts is written within a kingdom of God framework. It's bookended with emphasis on the teaching of the kingdom of God. This is paramount. This is primary. It was what Jesus taught about during his last 40 days. It's what Paul was talking about to all who came to see him in Rome. The kingdom of God. Now, here's what I want you to see. Because this book is all about the kingdom of God from beginning to end, it's bookended with the kingdom. It's important then, it's critically important then, for the book to begin with the ascension of Jesus. You know, the ascension of Jesus, as I've thought about it this week, is, it, it, it doesn't get enough attention. We don't talk about it enough. We talk about the incarnation. We talk about the crucifixion. 
We talk about the resurrection. What about the ascension? It's the ascension of Jesus that makes both the perfect ending to the book of Luke and the perfect beginning to the book of Acts. It's the ascension that we find as the last event in Luke, and it's the ascension that we find here at the beginning of Acts. You see, the book of Luke, volume 1, ends with the ascension of Jesus because it marked the conclusion of his physical ministry on earth. However, the book of Acts, volume 2, begins with the ascension of Jesus because it marks the beginning of his spiritual reign on earth. So what marked something coming to a conclusion in Luke marks something coming to a a start or something that's beginning in Acts. His physical ministry, the, the physical ministry of Christ on earth, occurred alongside his disciples. And the ascension marked the end of that time. Yet, his spiritual reign on earth occurs not alongside his disciples, but next to the right hand of his Father. And the ascension marks the beginning of that time. So the difference between these two volumes of Luke, between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the difference is not that Jesus is present in the first and absent in the second, or active in the first and inactive in the second, but rather the difference has to do with place. Jesus is just as present and active in the second volume, but not alongside his disciples but instead from his throne at the right hand of his Father. And this is so significant to understanding the book of Acts. The ascension of Jesus Christ does not just signify his exit from earth. It signifies his exaltation to the right hand of God. At the outset of this book, the risen Lord Jesus ascends to his throne and takes his rightful place as king. That's why the ascension of Jesus is the, the perfect beginning to this book that's all about the kingdom of God. That's why it was so important for for Jesus to talk about the kingdom of God, to instruct his disciples about the kingdom of God because he was getting ready to take his throne as the king. Jesus has been teaching, he taught all throughout his ministry about the kingdom of God. He's primarily spoken about it during these last 40 days. And what we find here at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 is verse 6, even the last recorded question that the disciples asked Jesus. This is the very last question. You know, we know that so many different questions were asked of Jesus during his time, but the last recorded one that we have here from the disciples is about the kingdom. In verse 6, they ask him, Lord, at this time, 
Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, even after all of the emphasis and all of the instruction, they still misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. And their question here shows us at least three main ways how they misunderstood it. And fortunately for us, their misunderstanding helps to instruct us today about what the kingdom of God is like. Because, you see, they were still thinking about wanting to have a kingdom like all the other nations had. And that's never what God wanted in the first place. And now that Jesus had taken his rightful place, the right hand of the Father, here's the kingdom. This is what the kingdom is going to be like. And and we learn about it due to their misunderstanding and their question. First, I'm going to look at three different things that we learn from this question First, by asking Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel, it shows that they were expecting him to restore things to like they were before. So they were still expecting a physical kingdom, one that you could find on a map. They were expecting him to restore things to like they were under King David, a kingdom that was like those of every other nation. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. Second, by asking Jesus if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, it shows us, it's implied there, that they were expecting a militaristic kingdom. Because you see, earthly kingdoms, history tells us, Brent Allen could inform us, that all earthly kingdoms are established only by military might. That's the only way it's ever been done. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Third, by asking Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel shows that they were expecting a national kingdom. One that would return the nation of Israel to a place of prominence among all the other nations. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. He did not come to establish a physical kingdom, but a spiritual one. And he did not come to establish a militaristic kingdom, but a missional one. And he did not come to establish a national kingdom, but an international one. And we see all three of these truths in Jesus' response to their question in verse 8. He replies, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now we're talking. There is the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. It's going to be spirit-filled. It's going to be spirit-led. 
It's going to be spirit-inspired. It's going to be a kingdom that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even before his ascension, in verse 2, we see, I love this verse. It's one of those that's just so easy to like just to read right through. It's the introduction. Uh, some dude named Theophilus. Then we read right through this, and we miss it. But in verse 2, it says, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. We see Jesus is giving instructions to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. You see, that's the pattern of Acts. That's the pattern. The risen Lord Jesus, the right hand of the Father, giving instruction, giving power, giving life to his people through the Holy Spirit. You see, here's, here's the best definition that I've, I can come up with about the kingdom of God. We're going to be talking a lot about the kingdom of God. So here at the outset, let me give you a definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ from the right hand of his Father in heaven in the lives of his people on earth through the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. It's the reign and rule of Jesus Christ from the right hand of his Father in heaven, in the lives of his people on earth, through the Holy Spirit. You see, the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. And he goes on in his response here in verse 8. Secondly, he says, and you will be my witnesses. And so there's a missional nature of the kingdom. You see, a a defining characteristic or definition of, of a kingdom, for a kingdom to be considered a kingdom, is that it has to grow and expand because that's what kingdoms do. Um, this is why Jesus will tell parables about how the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed or how it's like yeast and dough because kingdoms grow and expand. If, if, if king, that's what kingdoms do. That's part of being a kingdom. But what he says here is that the kingdom of God is going to grow and going to expand, not by soldiers. That's how earthly kingdoms would grow and expand through the military might, through soldiers. That's not how this kingdom's going to grow and expand. It's going to grow through witnesses, through witnesses of Jesus Christ, through those who have experienced Christ in their lives, through those who know Christ in their lives, through those who have a testimony to share about what Christ has done in their life. 
That's how this thing's going to spread. That's how it's going to expand. That's how it's going to grow is through witnesses, through those who've been touched by Christ. It's going to spread through those who have chosen to bend their knee to Christ. That's how this thing's going to grow. It's through witnesses. That's the second part. So it's, it's spiritual in nature, and then um, the second part is that uh, it's going to grow by, by witnesses, that it's missional in nature. And then third, it's international in nature, right? So it's starting in Jerusalem, and then it's in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this kingdom is only starting, it's only beginning in Jerusalem, but it's, it's spreading out to the ends of the earth to include every tongue, every tribe, every race, every nation. So thankful for that question and for that, that instruction, that final instruction to us about the kingdom of God. Spiritual, and it's missional, and it's international in its nature. And after this final instruction about the kingdom, Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven. Verses 9 through 11. After he said this, he's taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. If you recall, um, it's been a couple weeks ago, but... uh, my two sermons this month, uh, I titled Two Men and Two Questions. Um, last time I was with you and we looked at Luke chapter 24, we, we met the two men dressed in white. We later would learn that they're angels. They appear to the women at the tomb. And they ask them the question, why do you look for the living among the dead? It was a great question, and it, it emphasized for us the, the, the point that Jesus is not dead. He's alive, and we, we just read here in these introductory verses to Acts how even part of that 40 days he, he spent giving his disciples many convincing proofs of this fact. He's alive. Well, here in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, two men dressed in white again appear to the disciples. This time, after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Disciples are staring up into the sky, and while we, we really don't know what they were thinking, these, these two angels arrive and ask them, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? You know, most scholars believe that there is a mild rebuke 
expressed in this question. Kind of like, uh, you know, guys, why are y'all just standing around here with your heads in the clouds? And I, and I think that's probably right. You see, the kingdom of God, one thing that the disciples did get right with their question in verse 6, the kingdom of God is about restoration. That's true. But it's not about restoring the nation of Israel. Instead, it's about restoring the vocation of Israel as a light to the Gentiles. You see, the people of God had forgotten the reason why God had chosen them in the first place. God did not choose them to just make them into a great nation so that they could become like all the other nations. He chose them to make them into a great nation so that all peoples on earth would be blessed through them. That's Genesis chapter 12. They were blessed to be a blessing, and they had forgotten that. Later in Acts chapter 26, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah who said, I have made you, Israel, a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God had chosen and made Israel not for a special status as the only people of God, but for the special task of bringing salvation to all peoples of the earth. God had chosen and made Israel not for a special status as the only people of God, but for the special task of bringing salvation to all peoples of the earth. And so the angels asked the disciples, why do you stand here? looking into the sky. And with this question, the angels direct the attention of the disciples away from the clouds in heaven and toward their mission on earth. And I want us to hear this question in the same manner 2,000 years later. Because I often need my attention directed back to the task. And I think if we're not careful, the church today can make the same mistake that Israel made centuries ago. Because we have been given the Holy Spirit We do have a special status. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, 
you are now children of God. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that now our hearts cry out, Abba, Father, you are no longer considered a slave, but you're a child. And if you're a child, you're an heir to God through Christ. So we are sons. We are daughters of God. We are sons and daughters of the king. However, we must never become a people who bask in our status when there is still such a task before us. You see, God has chosen and made the church not for a special status as the only people of God, but for the special task of bringing salvation to all peoples of the earth. To put it plainly then, the church cannot just come together once a week to celebrate our status as children of God. We've been given a task. Here in just a moment, we are going to stand together as children of God. That is worthy of our celebration. That is worthy of our pause. That is... My, unbelievable, right? I, I, I know where I've come from. I, I know what I've done. And I'm a child of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And he's given me his Holy Spirit, Spirit of his Son, And so we come together and we're going to stand as children of God because that's who we are. That's what John would say in 1 John. That's who we are. He reminds us. And we're going to stand as children of God and we're going to raise our eyes to the heavens. And we're going to lift our hands to the skies. And we're going to worship our Lord and Savior, our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to do that here in just a moment together this morning. But as we leave here today, let us hear the mild rebuke of the angels. When they ask, why do you just stand there looking at the sky? For we have been given a task, church. And we've been given the power for the task when the Holy Spirit came on us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, thankful, so thankful for your word. We are thankful. Um, we're thankful. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of this church family here that we can walk together through your word and, and, hear, and, and, and open this 
this book, this ancient, these ancient words up afresh and ask your Holy Spirit to make them alive to us and to speak them afresh into our hearts. Father, we are, we, we, faith, we, we worship you, we celebrate the special status that we have because of what your Son has done and because of what you have given to us in your Holy Spirit. We can, our hearts, our hearts cry out, whether, it, whether we, our hearts cry out to you, Father. We can't help ourselves. So we celebrate our status. We worship you as our Father. We, we worship you, Jesus, as our risen Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we study these ancient words this, this year, empower us also through this Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, for the task that lies before us. For the task of being witnesses of all that you've done, of all you are. Here in Lexington, Bay County, state of Kentucky, United States, to the ends of the earth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to offer an invitation uh, to any of you who have not bowed your knee to Jesus as King. He's on his, he's on his throne. He reigns. He's alive. And he reigns today. He's taken his rightful place as king of the universe. And he calls you to come to him. Bend your knee to him. Place your faith into him. Submit yourself to him in baptism. Become his child. Be a part of this great task of the church to share him to the ends of the earth with the rest of the world. Please come if you'd like to be a part of him today. We stand together and sing.